Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the privilege again of coming around your word. It's already been a full weekend, but we are so grateful uh, that you're sustaining us physically and cognitively and that we can look to you uh, as we think about uh, the the realities of physical illness and how you meet us uh, even in hard things uh, for your purposes and for your glory. So guide us now as we talk in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, it's appropriate that following Stephen's talk on suffering and trials that we would talk about physical illness. Uh, I will never forget uh, early, early, early in the morning, uh, March 17th, 2006, I was uh, assisting my wife in getting into the emergency room at Lake Granbury Medical Center just down the road here because her contractions had increased in frequency and uh, our little girl was on the way into the world. Uh, We we joke with my daughter that um, uh, she was the quickest delivery of the three. We have two boys and a girl. She was the one that kind of snuck up on us and arrived quickly and uh, she's kind of been slow ever since. We joke with her about that, but anyway. Um, but uh, there we were, two o'clock in the morning, and uh, my beautiful daughter, who's now 17 and a half, uh, arrived safely. Well, it was just a few hours later on as we were enjoying our daughter, and, and my wife was recovering, and, and things were kind of settling down in the hospital that my wife's parents, my mother-in-law and father-in-law, stopped in to uh, visit and uh, see their new granddaughter. Uh, but they weren't there just for a visit. They actually had planned on being up very early that morning anyway because my mother-in-law was on her way to the hospital to undergo a procedure. Uh, she had had uh, significant abdominal pain in the past year, and uh, finally they had concluded that there was an operation needed So on March 17, 2006, the day my daughter came into the world, my mother-in-law had her first surgery. Well, fast forward today, it is uh, October of 2023, and my mother-in-law still deals with significant chronic pain and abdominal issues. Uh, She has had dozens of procedures. She has had all sorts of interventions Um, they actually removed her pancreas. And uh, you say, you can't do that, right? You need a pancreas. We understand basic physiology. Your your pancreas is really important, especially for the islet cells that it produces that allows you to break down sugar in your body. You can't live without a pancreas. Actually, you can. Uh, She had a procedure years ago in Tucson where they removed her pancreas, harvested the islet cells, infused them into her liver, And her liver produces insulin now, which is amazing. Uh, She she still has to supplement, but she's not a full-blown diabetic. Uh, But I say that because I'll never forget that morning my daughter came into the world. My mother-in-law was going for the first of what would be many procedures, none of which would solve her problem. And to this day, uh, she deals with chronic pain issues and uh, a lot of things that she can't do because that pain is incredibly debilitating. Uh, And about that time, just in God's providence, I had just started a brand new series in our adult Sunday school class, oddly enough, in the book of Job. So it was a bit of a parallel track that as our family 
was walking with my mother-in-law through what would be a you know, decades-long uh, season of chronic pain and health issues, uh, we were learning from the book of Job, uh, arguably one of the most significant books in the Bible that deals with suffering of all sorts, including physical suffering, uh, how God meets us in moments like that. And, and so even um, my mother-in-law, who is one of our ACBC counselors, uh, she and I have talked a lot about Job and biblical uh, truth about chronic pain and issues, and uh, she's even co-taught some seminars here at our conference regarding chronic pain and our advanced track. But, but I say that uh, because like you, uh, physical issues have touched our family. And I bet we could go around the room here and there would, none of us would be lacking in a story either in your own life, a spouse, a child, a parent, a family member. Physical problems are a, a, a normal part of living in a fallen world. And therefore we should expect that as we come alongside people to care for them in counseling contexts, that many of those people are going to be undergoing physical trials and physical illnesses uh, in that way. So that's why this talk is so important, really. I'm just going to build off of what Stephen just did, just a, an overall view of how we help counsel in suffering. And I want to talk specifically about how we do that with a medical issue. Okay? And again, I'm so grateful. Uh, we are blessed with people in our church. Uh, we have our pediatrician. We have nurses. Uh, we have uh, Dr. Clayton Roberts, who's an elder at our our uh, friends uh, down the road in Glenrose, Grace Community Glenrose, and uh, we're just so blessed to have a team of medical people in our area that's able to help us with the medical side of things while we try to counsel in terms of caring for the soul of people. So in your notes there, let's just talk about counseling physical illness. Let's first talk about what is our role as a biblical counselor uh, some of you, I know, do have medical training, doctors, nurses, etc. Uh, many of us do not. Um, but when we think about the role of the biblical counselor, even if a counselor possesses medical expertise or certification, that uh, we're not functioning, at least in the counseling mode, we're not functioning as a medical professional there. Uh, what we're functioning as is a, um, a brother or sister in Christ who's going to come alongside and care for that person in the context of physical needs and, and the afflictions that they're facing. Now, that's encouraging because uh, really what we're thinking about here is we're trying to address how the counselee is dealing with and responding to uh, the diagnosis or the actual syndrome or condition that they're experiencing. Um, that means that uh, we don't have to be a medical expert. We don't have to have medical knowledge in order to help that counselee. Now, there are some things that are going to be helpful for us, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but you don't have to be intimidated that if, uh, if you've not been through cancer or you're not, you don't have a chronic pain issue or um, you, you've not walked the path of Parkinson's disease or something like that, that, that you have nothing to say to somebody in counseling. Uh, in fact... Uh, one of the things we believe is that, that the church, the body of Christ, is a family that is designed to come together in moments like that and minister to one another, recognizing that we don't all have the same experiences. But we have the same Savior. We have the same God. We have the same Scripture. And around that, we gather to minister to our friend who's going through a medical issue. Um, the counselor should rely on the counselee to provide any needed medical information. That, that's important. And that's not saying that you know, you're sinning if you go home and Google whatever your person is going through. That's not what we're talking about. That's important because that's a safeguard to ensure 
that, that you and I are not sliding into that realm of giving medical advice. If we're allowing the counselee to be the source of that medical condition and that information that we desire, that safeguards that we're not, we're not moving into that role. Again, nothing wrong with, you know, looking into something, talking to a doctor. In fact, we often do that. You know, if it's a new condition that we're not familiar with, I'll call up one of my doctor friends and say, hey, I'm, I'm getting to care for somebody who has this condition. What can you tell me that might be helpful? And, uh, and often what's helpful there is to recognize sort of the progression of the illness. You know, sometimes you want to know kind of where are we going, what does the future hold, and uh, what to expect, what are the typical challenges there. But again, all that is just uh, as a means for me as the counselor to help care for somebody who's walking down the path of a medical issue. Uh, remember, even if we do possess medical background as a counselor, we, we don't play the role of physician. And I mentioned last night that the consent form that all ACBC counselors use is explicit, that uh, when we're functioning as counselors, even if we have you know, legal background, medical background, we have professional expertise in other areas, uh, we're not utilizing that in the context of counseling. We're functioning as a faith-based counselor. And, uh, and just a footnote on that, I, I know some of you are, are interested in uh, you know, maybe starting a counseling ministry in your church or you're interested in something like that. I'll tell you what, our insurance company really cares about that. Uh, we carry at our counseling ministry here, our 15, 16 ACBC certified counselors now, we carry a liability insurance policy that covers our counseling team here. We're, you know, the worst to happen where... You know, there's somebody who was unhappy about their care or felt like maybe we didn't care for them well and they were to bring a lawsuit. Uh, we have insurance to make sure that our counseling team and our church is protected, and we hope we never have to use it, but we feel like that's prudent. Well, every year when I talk to our insurance company to renew our premium and, and our policy on that, they are very interested in this part of our ministry. They want to make sure that we are functioning as faith-based counselors, that we are not functioning as professional licensed counselors, uh, licensed by the state of Texas. They are really uh, insistent to make sure we're not getting into the medical realm or any professional uh, uh, you know, legal advice like a lawyer would do or something like that. And that makes sense if you're an insurance company, right? Because the moment that we're saying this is what we do, but actually what we're doing is this, that increases our liability, doesn't it? And the insurance company, they're writing a policy that says, we're covering you for doing this. We're not covering you for acting as a professional counselor or a medical professional or something like that. And, and those of you that are doctors and nurses, you understand, in the medical world, insurance is crazy ridiculous, isn't it, in terms of cost and, and all of that. So, again, this is not just something to think about from an ethical standpoint. I mean, that, that, that should be uh, enough, but even from... A uh, insurance standpoint and a liability standpoint. If you want to protect your counselors in your church from potential lawsuits, this is a this is a really important point that we need to stress. Um, so, how are we going to do that? Well, what does it mean to let the the counselee give us information and not play the role of physician? It means first of all, we accept the diagnosis, right? It's not our job to prove or disprove the diagnosis. And, and we're friends here, right? We're friends. I know you have an opinion sometime on your friend's diagnosis. I know you do, because I do too. 
And you might think, you know what? They went to that one clinic. They went to that one doctor. And we know they have a reputation. And you know, my aunt had the same thing. And she got misdiagnosed. And then she went to this guy. And they, I know, I know, I know. Okay, we've all had scenarios like that. But this is not the context to have those conversations. Okay, and that's again where we have to let our faith and the ethics of our faith uh, guide us in this. Again. If you're talking to your friend and you're just having friend-to-friend conversation and you want to talk about that, go for it, okay? But in the context of a formal counseling conversation, when you're operating as a faith-based counselor, as a ministry of your church, that's not a conversation you want to have, okay? So be, be careful with that. Secondly, don't recommend other possible diagnoses, methods of diagnoses, or treatments. And again, I know all of us have opinions on that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But this is, again, not the context to have those conversations and make recommendations. Because, you know, you're the biblical counselor. This person is looking to you for expertise in, in terms of their care. And if you throw out something medical, even if you're not intending it, there's influence there that, that may or may not be... Um, appropriate. So it's better to just leave those conversations for uh, a different arena. Uh, number five, there, the counselor should help the counselee to deal with the illness from a spiritual perspective, not a medical perspective. And again, in our culture with, with GSD, Google self-diagnosis, and you know, everybody's an expert, everybody's on social media, everybody's an expert on all things medical and health. I know that. What we want to do is say, you know what, there's a time for that conversation. But our, our laser focus in counseling people with a physical illness is to help them with the spiritual side, how they're processing their physical illness from a spiritual perspective. That, that's the lane that biblical counselors want to stay in. The goal, in fact, is to turn the counselee's attention from the pain and discomfort of the illness to what God is, through, is, God is doing through it. And Stephen talked a lot about that last hour, right? What is God doing in suffering? And what are biblical perspectives that help somebody who is in affliction uh, to be able to find the resources of God to even thrive in the midst uh, of their faith uh, in, in a difficulty like that? Um, and, and you know this, if you've gone through a physical time or a, a child, a spouse, your parent... You know what happens as soon as that physical thing comes up. That becomes the sole focus of life, right? Are, are you with me? And it's, it's, you know, what's the right doctor? What's the right treatment? What's going to happen? What's the prognosis? And, and there's a time for that, right? We want to be a good steward in terms of caring for the physical part of that. But if we're not careful, that, that overemphasis of our culture to focus on what do we do about the physical problem often under... Um, undercuts and distracts us from the reality that how I'm dealing with that in my heart is a much more important issue. Uh, It's possible, in fact you guys have seen this, that what people do often is they spend so much time on dealing with the physical part of their disease and what to do about it and doctors and medications and all that, that they're they're actually spiraling spiritually. And then when that promise of a cure, when that doctor who was going to help me finally, you know, my, 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 my girlfriend or the guy at the office said, hey, this, this guy is the, the expert on this and you put all your hope in that treatment and you, you know, you're getting a second mortgage on your house to pay for it and, and then it doesn't fall, it, it doesn't fulfill, right? You don't get better. What happens then? and you've put all your hope in a physical cure or a doctor or an intervention, you've neglected 
your true source of hope in, in, in the work of Christ and leaning on Him, and that's often where you'll see a counselee really plummet. Are you with me? Have you seen that before? Okay? So our goal is to keep them focused, at least in the context of counseling, on what God is doing in their life and to help them to thrive spiritually even in the midst of physical affliction. Now, one of the things you're going to have to do very often, and again, this is uh, uh, relating back to some things that Stephen talked about as well, is we have to recognize that often Christians are going to have an unbiblical view of their trials or afflictions. I, I saw it again last th- this last week. Have you noticed that a lot of believers, a lot of Christians that are otherwise well-taught, when they come up against bizarre things, they immediately think demonic issues. Have you noticed that as just a trend? Um, other times it's like, um, here's this really, really painful emotion or this really, really uh, significant sin issue, and they think, man, there's got, you know, Satan's got to be in this deal or something like that, right? And, and again, we're, we're not saying that, that there isn't a place to understand Satan's role. In fact, we're going to look at Job here in a minute, and we'll see that. But it's really important that you help your counselee understand a biblical view of trials and suffering and to avoid some of the misguided ideas out there. So, for example, some people might think that trials and suffering are always a result of my personal sin. And that's why if you go to your church to get counseling... And your counselor's uh, business card says Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar on it. <laughs> Job's three friends. You're like, ah, are there anybody else here that I can talk to, please? Right? Because that's what was happening in Job. In, in Job's three friends, their theology, something we call retributive theology is the formal word, in, in their theology, it's like God is a vending machine. He's a vending machine, right? You know, you do what's right. And things go well, you do what's wrong, and God punishes you, right? You put your dollar in, you get your Coke. That, that's, that's their theology. And, of course, they're looking at all this affliction in Job's life, and in their thinking, they're thinking there must be some hidden sin that he's not dealing with. And so they spend chapter after chapter after chapter saying, just repent, just repent, just repent, and, uh, and then the gloves come off. And then the friends start saying things like, uh, well, you know, if, if, you, uh, if, if, uh, if you had um, done better at this, then, then your kid's wouldn't have suffered like that. And at one point, one of Job's friends actually says, maybe your kids just got what was coming to them. And you go, right? So, so let's not counsel like Job's friends, okay? We, we can commend them. They went. They cared for their friend. They were there for a week. They didn't say anything. The ministry of presence, that's awesome. All went wrong when they opened their mouth. And that is a really good caution for people like you and me. But let's avoid the the caricature, the wrong view that says suffering and trials is always a result of personal sin. Uh, here's another one. Trials and suffering are always always someone else's fault. Now that's the, kind of the opposite. That's a victim mentality, right? I'm always blaming other people. I'm always uh, blaming uh, other uh, parties for what's going on in my life. That, that's also a, a extreme to avoid there. Um, we want to avoid the view that says trials and suffering just happen, that there's no purpose in them. Now, now this is is crazy because when you're suffering and you're hurting and that hurt doesn't go away, you will begin to be tempted to believe things you would never otherwise believe. Have you seen that? When things are really hard, especially when the trial is chronic, it's not going away and it's just pressing down on you day after day, a couple of things are going to happen. 
you're going to start entertaining things that you otherwise would never entertain. You're going to start thinking things about God that you otherwise would know is not true. You're going to start thinking things about yourself that you would otherwise realize are not true. You're going to start thinking about interventions. You've probably seen this. Someone you know, is in a chronic illness, a cancer thing or whatever, and they've, they've exhausted the medical options. And then they've got a friend who knows a friend who read something on social media, and, and there's this brand new, weird kind of deal. And, and they literally you know, drain their retirement account to go pursue that only to find out that it was all a marketing scam and now they're not better and they're broke and they're even more discouraged and in the midst of all that you can just be like why do we make decisions like that well we we are very vulnerable to make really foolish decisions when we're hurting especially when that hurting doesn't go away which is why uh, we need the body of Christ it's why we need a church because it's in this community that we're able to help one another. And if you notice this, when you're going through something difficult, you're not the best evaluator of what's going on. Often people around you that love you can see things that you can't see so clearly in your life. And if I'm going through that, you can see things in my life that I can't see so clearly. So we need the community of faith to help walk through moments like this. And one of those things that I think we're tempted to believe in suffering is that maybe this is just all random. Maybe there is no purpose. You know, I hurt so much, what can possibly be the purpose? Number four, God is punishing me. God is out to get me. Uh, we see that, uh, we saw that last night when I read from Lamentations chapter 3 with Jeremiah. You remember that? Uh, Jeremiah says, it's like God has walled me in. It's like he's not answering my prayer. It's like he's a bear lying in wait to devour me or a lion or an archer shooting his arrows at me. God is out for my destruction. And um, be weary, guys, because our, our emotions, especially in pain, our emotions are blasphemous artists in the pictures of God that they paint for us when we're hurting. So be careful. If it can happen to Jeremiah, you better believe it can happen to you know lesser mature Christians like me. Um, so be careful of that, that viewpoint, God is punishing me, God must be out to get me. Be careful of the viewpoint that says God is unwilling or unable to help me. That's what Jeremiah is saying. I'm praying and he's not listening. Well, that was Jeremiah's misinterpretation. Th- think of a, a different scenario. Think of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, where Paul has his thorn in the flesh. You're familiar with that story? We don't know if it was a medical issue or a problem person or something like that. But it, it was apparently so bad that Paul went to God on three different occasions saying, I can't take this, take it away. And God said, no. What do you do in a trial when you plead for God to take it away and he says no. One of the things that we're tempted to believe in that moment is that the silence we're hearing from heaven means God doesn't care about me. God's not listening to me. Instead of recognizing, you know, sometimes God answers prayer not by removing the trial, but by increasing grace. And that was his answer to Paul, right? Uh, I employed the Lord three times to take it away. God said no. And so what was the response from heaven? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected 
in weakness. So we've got to be really, really careful about misinterpreting uh, when we don't... You know, my, my pastor growing up, I, I grew up in a traditional church, and you know, some of the theology was good, some of it wasn't so good. But I remember my pastor teaching us when I was like 13, God answers prayer in four ways. Do you know this? He answers prayer in four ways. He says yes, he says no, he says wait, or he says I've got something better. And sometimes we have a category that says, I'm going to pray and God's supposed to say yes. And if he doesn't say yes, it's because he doesn't care, or he's punishing me, or there's something wrong, he doesn't like me, right? And yet the reality is an all-wise God is going to answer, yes, no, wait, or I've got something better. I mean, just think, when your three-year-old comes and asks you something, requests something, do you always tell them yes? If you always told them yes, they would probably be dead really early on, right? Because they ask for all sorts of things that aren't helpful for them. So we need to have a similar view that our Heavenly Father knows what's best. And, and when He says no, or when He says wait, or when He says, I've got something better than you've even considered, it's not because He doesn't care. It's because He's wise, and He's loving, and He knows what we need even better than what we need, than we know. The view that says trials and suffering always come from Satan, it's interesting. Uh, if, in our Bibles, uh, when we look at uh, the example of Job... Um, you know what's interesting about that? So you guys know Job, right? So, so Job, this righteous man, and um, Satan goes to God and basically says, um, you know, he's presenting himself, and, and God points out Job to Satan, brings Job to Satan's attention, and uh, then Satan throws down that challenge and says, hey, you know, Job only worships you because you made his life so nice. Take some of that nice, niceness out, he'll curse you to your face. God says, game on, Right? Um, and, and really, that whole book is about thwarting the blasphemous lie of Satan. Namely, that believers only worship God because they give them nice things. That whole book is about showing that Satan is horribly wrong and a liar when he says that. But that, that cosmic drama is getting played out in and through the life of Job. So you and I as the reader, we know that's what's going on. But who doesn't know about that conversation in the heavenly places with, with God and Satan? Who doesn't know about that conversation? Job doesn't. His wife doesn't. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar don't. Elihu doesn't know. Nobody in the book knows about that conversation. So that whole narrative is, is being played out. We know as the reader that Satan's uh, charge of God, uh, namely that God has to buy worshipers, really is what he's saying, um, that, that that's the drama, but no one else that's living, in, you know, living out the story actually knows what's going on. So, um, the, the view that trials and suffering always come from Satan, we would say, no, that's not true. We do have to have a category that says there may be something demonic or something satanic in all of this, and yet, as the Book of Job shows us, God has to give Satan permission for even the most significant action that Satan takes. So while we might say, yes, maybe Satan is involved in my trial and suffering, all of that comes under the, under the permissive hand of a sovereign and good God. Okay, and again, I will just blow through some of this because I know Stephen just did a really good job uh, with this, but um, uh, the key to dealing with trials and suffering is to see that God and, God and His purpose is in the midst of it. And uh, we see that... Um, let's uh, look at a couple of biblical examples here. Uh, turn with me in your Bible to uh, Genesis chapter 50. 
You guys know the story. Uh, Joseph, one of the younger sons of uh, Jacob, uh, later called Israel. And uh, he was favored by his father. His father gave him a special coat, probably from Macy's or somewhere like that. And, um, you know, we think of it as the, you know, the technicolor color dream coat. The, the Hebrew word actually means it was a long-sleeved tunic, which uh, gave it a, a prominence and an importance in terms of the garments of that day. And uh, you know the story. His brothers were jealous. Uh, he had the dreams where he... Um, uh, mentioned this prophecy that one day he would assume power in Egypt and that even his family members would bow down to him. That angered the brothers even more. And so they sell him into slavery. And uh, in the midst of trial after trial, difficulty after difficulty, uh, he he's almost dies. He's falsely accused. He ends up in jail. Um, his father, of course, thinks he's long dead. And then in the most amazing uh, story of providence, God moves him into a place of prominence in the nation of Egypt in order to preserve the whole known world from this massive famine that's about to happen. And because of Joseph's intervention and they store up grain and Egypt is able to keep not just Egypt but the surrounding nations alive through the season of famine. And, um, and then that wonderful moment at the end where um, the brothers are reunited and uh, and you read all of that and you go man what a what a story what a difficult life what, what I mean you imagine you help your buddy in jail get out and the last thing you say is remember tell the king put a good word in for me and he forgets and you're in the jail for another how many more years right I mean, just trial after trial, difficulty after difficulty, a man of integrity falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, and, and on and on. And then, remember, they all get together, they, they reunite, he gets to see his father, his father comes to live in the land, and then Jacob dies, and the, and the brothers go, uh-oh. Maybe Joseph was nice to us because dad was still alive. Dad's dead now. Maybe we're in trouble. So we'll pick it up in Genesis chapter 50. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So then they make up this you know, pathetic story. Your father charged us before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, uh, for they did you wrong. Okay? Please forgive the transgression of the servants of your God. And you're like, okay, and no doubt Joseph saw through their pathetic story. Verse, the end of verse 17, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why do you think he cried? After all that, his brothers still think there's a grudge. His brothers still think Joseph's out to get them. So in the midst of tears, Joseph says this. His brothers come and they fall down before him and they say, we are your servants. Verse 19, Joseph says to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God 
meant it for good. Can you think of a better ending to the story than that? Where this young teenage boy, taken from his home, sold into slavery, falsely accused, ends up in jail, forgotten by friends that made promises, ends up at this place in life. God uses him to save the whole nation from a famine. He's reunited with his with his father, with his brothers. And all the while, God was working on him, wasn't he? God helped him to see his affliction was not about him. It was about God's plan that was bigger and grander than he could have possibly imagined. And at the end of the story, he gets to tell his brothers, look, you missed it. This isn't about me and you. This isn't about some grudge that you and I had. This is about God preserving a whole nation. And he used our family to do it. He says, am I in God's place? What you did was evil. He's not denying the evil done him. But he said, God meant it for good. What was that? To bring about this present result, the preserving of many people. So therefore, do not be afraid. Verse 21, I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Do you know that it's possible that the suffering you're going through may not be ultimately about you. It might be something bigger and grander as a part of God's plan, as it was in the case of Joseph. Now, did did God use Joseph's suffering in his life? Sure he did. And we get to see Joseph's heart and maturity at the end of the story. Did he use it to bring reconciliation with the brothers eventually? Yes, he did. But it was, I mean, if God had told him at the very beginning, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your life horrible, but here's what I'm going to do. If God had told Job at the beginning of the story, um, Satan and I just had a conversation, so your life's going to be miserable for the next few years, but it's all about what's going on up here, just stay with me. Right? God doesn't tell us that, probably because we couldn't handle that. But we need to remember, God is working good in the midst of suffering. We see that in Job's life as well. I mean, just listen. You know, Job, on one afternoon, Job loses his servants, his crops, his animals, and his ten, all ten, of his precious children. And then shortly after that, uh, Job is afflicted with a some sort of skin disease. Chapter 2, verse 8 says it caused horrible itching. Chapter 7, verse 5 said those skin uh, boils uh, where broken skin was festering were, was infested with worms. I know, I know. Chapter 30, verse 30, his skin turned black, his skin peeled, he experienced fever and a burning body. Chapters 2 and 19 tell us that he was repulsive in appearance. Chapter 19 indicates people stayed away because they thought he was contagious. Chapter 16 tells us his eyes were swollen from the disease and because of weeping. Chapter 30 says he had digestive issues. Chapter 7 uh, tells us he was sleepless and experienced some measure of delirium as well as choking. Chapter 19 says it was affecting his breath and his uh, 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 mouth-related issues. Uh, Chapter 19, verse 20 says uh, he became severely emaciated. And chapter 30, verse 17 says he was in excruciating pain throughout his body. 
and we say, what could God possibly be doing in the midst of all of that? And yet, as you read the story, I feel like I have a pastor friend that says a Christian classic, you know, a book. That's a book that every Christian owns, but nobody has read. That's a Christian classic. And I feel like Job is kind of a Christian classic. It's a book that all of us own, but nobody has really read. You know, we, we read the beginning, we read the end, it's that middle part. We kind of get lost. And so we skip those parts in our Bible reading plan, and then we're kind of confused that God calls him on the carpet for three chapters at the end. But he restores his fortune, so... But you, you know what the book of Job is about? The book of Job is about, first of all, showing that Satan's blasphemous charge that God has to buy worshipers is completely wrong that God is worthy of, of worship simply because he's God, not because he makes our life nice. That's purpose number one. Purpose number two, Job didn't have some, some hidden outward sin that he needed to repent of, but God used his suffering to reveal an unseen pride that ultimately accused God of wrongdoing for the affliction that God brought into his life. And that's, that's why the story ends the way it is. That's, that's why Job says, okay, I get it, I repent in dust and ashes. I said things I didn't understand. Um, so God is always redeeming suffering. He's working in suffering. We see that in, in James. Uh, James talks about how God uh, calls us to persevere in trials because the testing of our faith produces endurance. And endurance leads to this wonderful result that we're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Um, so it creates endurance. It creates maturity. It creates Christ-likeness. Uh, I mentioned 2 Corinthians 12 a moment ago. God says through um, uh, the Apostle Paul that trials are for the demonstration of the sufficiency of Christ's grace and mercy and power. And remember what Paul says at the end of that? He says, if my suffering is about magnifying the power of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ in my life, he says, then I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Because when I'm weak, I'm actually the strongest uh, in Christ. So those are some great character studies to consider. When we think about what is God doing in suffering, we see it in the Psalms as well. Now, now we know that trials and suffering are a result of sin, either directly or indirectly. Uh, directly in the sense someone might sin against me, or I might sin and there are some consequences. But indirectly, suffering is a result of sin because we live in a fallen world. If sin hadn't entered the world, we wouldn't have accidents and sicknesses and death and illnesses and whatnot. Uh, so we recognize that sin ultimately is the cause of every form of suffering. And yet God is always sovereign and in control of all things. Uh, going back to the passage we looked at last night in Lamentations chapter 3, Jeremiah affirms that God causes both calamity and blessing. He's sovereign over it all. And what's Jeremiah doing in Lamentations? He's watching his beloved city of Jerusalem burn in 586 as the Babylonians come in and destroy the wall and destroy the city and tear down the temple and kill a bunch of people and carry the rest off to Babylon. And Jeremiah reflecting on that says, I have to believe that that isn't out of control randomness. That is under the sovereignty of God and His plan. That God is over calamity and blessing. And just a footnote on that, sometimes that makes, it makes Christians nervous sometimes to hear, how can we say God is sovereign over that? That's horrible, that's sinful, that's evil. Well, the Bible tells us that God is sovereign over all things, yet in a way that never makes him responsible for evil. 
So as we're trying to help people to understand trials and suffering, we want to help them to see God is in control. He didn't abandon His post, uh, that He's sovereign over all, including your affliction, and yet never in a way that He's responsible in a moral sense for things like evil or sin. Those are always the result of our own uh, sinful efforts or other fallen human beings. God is never responsible for sin or wickedness. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Uh, So God is not morally responsible for that. And yet God's sovereignty is such, this is amazing guys, this is the bottom line. Um, Some people struggle with God's sovereignty. Some people struggle with this doctrine. And yet, it is the most beautiful doctrine in the world because believing in the sovereignty of God is affirming God can take horrible, evil, wicked, sinful, affliction, painful scenarios and turn them into something beautiful and good and beneficial. And it's only because He's sovereign that He can do that. That's the testimony of Joseph in Genesis 50. That's the testimony of Paul in Romans chapter 8, that God is working all things together for good. That's the testimony of the prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah. That's the testimony ultimately of Job when he says, um, uh, Blessed be the name of the Lord, even though you give and you take away. So the question is, in light of that sort of overview of the doctrine, how does God call believers to respond? Well, we've seen some of these already. Uh, Stephen covered some of these things, and uh, so we'll just flip through them here. Um, The first way God calls believers to respond in the midst of difficulty is to call us to seek Him, to trust Him, to glorify Him, to please Him in all things. And and the way we want to seek that primarily is to pray and to ask God to grow us and change us, not not just get us through the difficulty. See, that's one of the challenges is it's not wrong to pray, Lord, please take this away, I'm hurting. It's not wrong to pray, Lord, please help me find a cure for my cancer or for my situation. That's not a wrong way to, to pray. But the Bible says there's something even more important than that that we should also pray. And, and what we, we ought to pray there is, Lord, help me to trust you, grow me to be more like Christ, make me to depend on you more. What, will you show Christ's power in my weakness? Will you help this to persevere and mature my faith? And, uh, and to endure those things, knowing that God often uses physical affliction as his means to sanctify us, to grow us in the image of Christ. You know, the Bible gives us some, some specific uh, examples of why he might bring in trials and suffering. Uh, we see unconfessed sin uh, at times. We think about Paul and the Corinthians where there were people that were sick because they were actually living in sin and, and actually abusing the Lord's table and things of that nature. Uh, Hebrews 12 says, Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That word discipline means to train, just like a father who loves his children would want to discipline and train. So God disciplines us. Hebrews says, so that we can share in his holiness. Uh, uh, Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. The Father's going to prune the tree. Uh, Pruning sometimes takes the form of discipline or affliction. Because why? Because God's pruning the tree to make us more fruitful and more effective in that. Uh, Sometimes God brings in affliction simply to show us that we live in a fallen world. Uh, As Stephen, Stephen's point number one last hour, that we would long for a better world. Uh, This world is not our home. Uh, It also sometimes shows us that the sin of others can have effect on us. 
God helps us to see that. Uh, sometimes trials and difficulties allow us, is God allowing us to reap what we sow or to teach us about our own weakness and cause us to depend on God in more significant ways? Sometimes, sometimes this happens to help us realize that we have put our hope in something else. We've put our hope in someone else other than God himself. And so those trials are designed to help us to, to wean us from the world or wean us from that, that uh, refuge. The Bible uses these great metaphors to help us to see what happens. And you guys know Psalm 46.1, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. In contrast to that, the Psalms and some of the prophets talk about what we might call a false refuge. And one of the biggest false refuges, meaning a place we run for safety and security and help instead of the Lord, is we will create a false refuge out of finding a cure, finding a treatment, finding a doctor. Again, those are not bad things. We ought to pursue those things. But what we should not do, indeed we cannot do, is make that, the medical intervention, our ultimate refuge and strength. Only God ought to occupy that duty. Uh, listen to John Newton, one of my historic heroes. You guys know Newton. Uh, Newton was the uh, author of the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, he was also a pastor in two different congregations in England, and he was one of the finest pastoral counselors of history. Let me show you why I think that. Listen to Newton. He's writing to somebody going through physical affliction. He said, the Lord deals with us as children. Children, when they are young, have many little indulgences. As they grow, they are subject to discipline and must learn obedience. So, when faith and knowledge are in their infancy, meaning when we're immature as Christians, the Lord helps this weakness by cordials and sensible comforts. But when they are advanced in growth, He exercises and proves them by many changes and trials and calls us, listen to this, to live more directly upon His power and His promises in the face of all discouragements, to hope even against hope, and at times He seems to deprive us of every subsidiary support. Why? So that we may lean only and entirely upon our Beloved. You understand what he's saying? Newton is saying is when we're young, God gives us lots of other things to support our faith. As we grow in our faith, God might remove those things. And when God removes, removes things that we love, people that we love, things that we appreciate as His gifts, like our health, it's not because He's out to get us. It's not because He's out for our destruction. Newton is saying God kicks out those subsidiary supports. Why? So that we will lean more on Christ alone. Um, now, you're going to feel like that, right? A physical affliction, it feels like you're barely hanging on. God comes by and goes, Kit! and he kicks out the one thing you're hanging on to. But remember, that's not an act of hatred. That's an act of love that you would and I would depend more on our Savior. That's what Newton is getting at. Now you see why I like Newton, right? That's pretty good. Okay? Uh, again, other reasons God brings in trials to enlarge our appreciation of His sufficiency, to test and strengthen our faith, to create opportunities for witness to Christ. You remember that? Paul's in jail, right? He's in jail, and um, he can't be out there witnessing and whatnot. People are able to come to him. He hears about a faction 
that's preaching the gospel, but they're, but this faction hates Paul and, and knows that because they're out there ministering the gospel, that's going to bring great affliction and grief to Paul. Paul's in prison, he can't do anything about it. What does he say? As long as they're preaching Christ, I'm happy about that. <laughs> it had increased his fruitfulness, even though he was under house arrest and, and didn't have the freedom he had at other points in his ministry. Uh, develop Christ-like character. We talked about that in James, right? Uh, that we would pursue perseverance, Christ-likeness. You'd be perfect and complete, meaning mature in Christ, lacking in nothing. Uh, let me give you another Newton quote. Afflictions do us likewise as they make us more acquainted with what is in our hearts and thereby promote humiliation and self-abasement. Then he says this, There are abominations which, like nests of vipers, lie so quietly within that we hardly suspect that they are there until the rod of affliction rouses them. Then they hiss and they show their venom. This discovery is indeed very distressing. We say, yes, Mr. Newton, you're telling us we have snakes in our hearts. Of course it's distressing. Yet, till it is made, we are prone to think ourselves much less vile than we really are and cannot so heartily abhor ourselves and repent in dust and ashes. That's exactly what happens in Job. There were some snakes there that needed to be revealed and God used affliction to reveal those things, not to Job's destruction, but to his flourishing to his repentance and growth. So don't be surprised when you and I go through physical illness and physical affliction that we see ugliness coming out of our heart. That's not God saying, I hate you, look at how bad you are. That's God saying, do you see how much I love you because I want to redeem these things in your life so I can make you more like my son? That's the perspective. So we want to help people to see that. A few more here to cause us to recognize our need for one another in the body of Christ. We talked about that. I had a professor that used to say in the Christian life, lone rangers are dead rangers because we need one another. Uh, and that's true. We need the body of Christ to do that. And of course, uh, we know that God is working all things to bring glory to himself and we want to look for the glory of God in our affliction. Okay. So how do we bring biblical encouragement in light of that? How do we help people struggling with physical affliction? We want to point them to the Trinity. We want to point them to the Father who is carrying out His will which is good and acceptable and perfect. We want to point them to Christ who as our sympathetic high priest prays on our behalf and sympathizes with us in our weaknesses and has grace and mercy to help in our time of need. We want to remind our, our afflicted friend of the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells them and empowers them, has sealed them and ensures that uh, that no temptation will be too much and that the Lord will always bolster and increase grace as he reminds Paul, we talked about it a moment ago, that God's grace is sufficient. Christ's power is perfected in our weakness. No temptation is too powerful. Uh, God promises to be faithful to us, to never put us in an affliction that is too strong for us to endure apart from his grace. Or, or in, um, as long as we have His grace, and um, and He will always provide a way of escape, right? Second Corinthians, First Corinthians says He always provides a way of escape, so that we can endure it, right? Remember, God doesn't always remove us from the trial, but He always provides grace and mercy uh, sufficient. 
for the trial. Again, we remember what Stephen said, our earthly light is short. Our earthly life is short compared to eternity with the Lord. And so we want to remember that momentary light affliction is producing in us an eternal weight far beyond all of our comprehension. Um, you You know why God doesn't make our life great all the time? He wants us to not get too attached to this world. I remember when our kids were little, and um, one of my kids was really, one of my sons, really, really frustrated. Um, you know, why don't you always get, and it's like, do you think if God gave us everything that we always asked for, what kind of people would we be? We'd be worldly, we'd be arrogant, we'd be selfish, we'd be foolish, right? And, and, and so our Heavenly Father doesn't give us everything we want. He, he doesn't... He doesn't grant us comfort and ease and all of that because He wants us to long for another world. And remember that this world is not our home. And again, the body of Christ, I think there's a great opportunity there for the church to be the church in all of this. Okay, so just some counseling principles. Uh, You guys know this, but let me give you some specifics for a medical condition now, okay? Um, Data gathering. You guys know how to do data gathering, but we want to get some specific information about the medical condition. We want to get some specific information. How is the person responding? Right? That's really important because what we're doing in counseling is we're directing the care toward how the person is responding to the challenge. And so this information allows us to figure that out and then plot a course uh, that's going to be helpful to them. Biblical hope becomes very important in a ministry like this. We always want to convey hope. But one of the things we especially want to do as a person is dealing with a physical illness, a physical diagnosis, we want to point them to hope that is in Christ even if relief doesn't come. You pray with them, you weep with them that God might provide intervention and care and even a cure. But we want to help them to see that we want to put our eyes on the great physician and trust him and that if his will is not to heal in this life that we have security and we have grace, and we have an eternal weight of glory in the next life that encourages us in that. Uh, The help of Christ, again, that that grace and mercy that's available to help there with our sympathetic high priest. And then just some biblical principles that might be particularly helpful. We talked about some of these already. We want to remind them about the nature of uh, trials and suffering. We want them to remember God is sovereign and in control, even though we're sickness and disease. Uh, we, we want to call them to seek, to trust and please and honor God in all things, even when we feel bad and we hurt. Uh, we want to pray for growth and change, not just to get through the difficulty. That, that's a real turning point in counseling in a physical illness. When they start to focus more on praying for God to help them to be a good testimony of suffering. When they start saying, Lord, help me to trust you whether or not this cancer treatment works or not. When their focus begins to shift from physical cures to spiritual flourishing and even their testimony, um, that's where good things are beginning to happen. Some homework ideas. We want to give them some homework um, in areas of the biblical principles, not on the health issues, but just reading the Psalms, these examples we looked at of people that went through hard things, verses that remind them to look to what God is doing in the midst of suffering and to redeem that. Um, 
Many years ago, uh, I heard about a guy named Brian Birdwell, uh, who is now Senator Birdwell, who represents our district right here in Hood County. Uh, he was an Army officer stationed at the Pentagon the morning that 9-11 happened. Uh, he had left his office to go down the hall to use the men's room when the airplane hit. His office was completely destroyed and his co-workers were instantly killed. He was down the hall in the restroom and so he survived the crash, but he was burned over 60% of his body. And for the next several months, he went through horrible um, uh, medical interventions designed to repair the uh, significant burns he had on his body. Uh, he wrote a book, and I would commend it to you, called Refined by Fire. It's one of my favorite biographies. Uh, listen to what Senator Birdwell said in the aftermath of all of this, going through horrible physical affliction and particularly how his wife Mel ministered God's word to him in the midst of all this. He writes, Mel, continued to, Mel continually stood by my bed and read the Psalms and other passages of Scripture to me. Hearing words from the Bible had become even more important to me in such a time of emotional and physical pain. I wanted Mel to read to me as much as she could. It seemed as if every psalm she read talked about God carrying me in His right hand and protecting me. I felt like God was talking directly to us. Through the Bible, He was telling us that He protected me from my enemies, that justice would be His, and it was comforting and powerful to hear her read, to be reminded of the great God we serve. After Mel read 1 Peter 5.10, she wrote on a dry erase board and hung it in my room so that we could be reminded of that promise every day. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That was not only a promise God made to us spiritually, He made, I believe, for me physically. I don't know why the Lord kept me alive, but the Lord can answer that question. He kept His promise. While I may not be physically the same as I was the day in the Pentagon, the day before I was in the Pentagon, I am certainly a much stronger and better Christian after this experience. And our marriage is also stronger. I am fortunate to have a spouse who understood the gravity of our wedding vows. She definitely had to deal with me for worse and in the sickness part. So I would commend that to you as an example of one of our own here that's walked this road and has realized some of these things that we talked about. And uh, so, so let's, let's pull together as a church to walk with people that are struggling physically to help them realize uh, the benefits, the grace, the mercy that we know God has for them as they walk that difficult road. Uh, Father, thank you for your word, and thank you that it is a source of such grace and mercy. Father, I know that there are people here that are struggling physically, and, and many of us are walking alongside others. Uh, might we see through the example of biblical uh, men and women, through the example of modern examples like Senator Birdwell and others, that your grace is indeed sufficient, that your power is perfected in our weakness, and that you will never, ever let us down in terms of leaving or forsaking, but you will always walk with us and giving us what we need, not just to endure our trials, but to thrive and to be more like Christ through them. So make us skilled as we come alongside and help people. In Jesus' name, amen.